We're talking about the basics of Christianity series. This is lesson two, which, was, uh, which I was going to really uh, teach last Wednesday, but since we had a snow day, uh, we had a remote uh, online class, and uh, I really felt God in that message, believe it or not, and if you haven't seen it, please tune in. <clears throat> I want to read from Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11. Is the foundation for these series. We're talking about the basics. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. <clears throat> we, as we look at these uh, various religions throughout the world today, you know, a lot of people think there's, there's, there's thousands of them or hundreds at least, you know. But in reality, there's only about 11 organized religions. And there are some primitive religions that we look at also. And hopefully by the time that we're done with this lesson, I'm going to throw a lot at you. That's why I gave that handout to you. You can look it over in afterwards. We're not going into extensive detail in any one of these. But the main points, and I think that the main points will be enough to let you see and understand and appreciate your faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. So in the historical context, we will see how Christianity fits in the general history of other religions. And we will better understand the main ideas of other religions in comparison to Christianity. And we will gain a better and greater appreciation for the true biblical Christianity when we compare it to the teachings and the claims of other religions. Now, that hand that I gave you with the fill-in-the-blanks are in chronological order, so feel free to, to fill those in as you hear the appropriate answer. Amen. And if you don't have the answer by the end, well, come see one of the pastoral staff members or my wife and they got the cheat sheet. I mean the answer sheet. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So when we're talking about major religions of the world, again, there aren't hundreds and every thousand. There's only about 11 organized. Uh, and we include, well, include, but we add the primitive religions. And, and when we're talking about religion, from a, a, a dictionary definition, we'll say that, uh, that religion... Is man's expression of his acknowledgement of the divine. Religion is man's expression of his acknowledgement of the divine. That there's a God. There's some God. There's something out there. Amen. And you express it in some form. Now, there are several references to the word religion in the Bible. And uh, one is found in Acts 26, 4 through 5. And that verse, those two verses say, mine. My manner of life, he said, you know, from my youth, which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews. And this is Paul, the apostle, talking in defense of himself against the accusations of being a Christian and, uh, and leaving Judaism. And verse 5, he says, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest or narrowest sect of the religion, of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Religion is mentioned here. His expression 
of acknowledgement of the divine. And in James 1, 26 and 27, we read, If any man among you seem religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Amen. Now, we believe that, that many religions are really man-made and the figments of their own imagination, but we believe that both Judaism and Christianity from outset uh, are not man-made religions. In fact, quite the opposite. They're given to us directly by God. Hallelujah. God gave it first to Abraham, and that's the beginning of the Hebrews. And then, of course, uh, with his descendants, Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes, and then, of course, Moses, the lawgiver, and so on. But when we look at organized religions, uh, there are certain characteristics. Uh, there are certain features that it needs to have. And the first is history or origins. It has to have a beginning. All religions can trace their origins to a place or a person. Second of all, the other feature is a concept of deity. One of the main features of an organized religion is that it acknowledges the existence of a higher being or power. Thirdly, they, it must have a concept of the origins of mankind. Each organized religion has an explanation for the question of where did man come from. And then <clears throat> there's the concept of salvation, the feature of salvation. Each religion has its own answer to the problem of the human condition and, and some offer of a better existence than the one we are living in right now. And besides salvation, there is worship. Most religions provide their own ceremonies that express their faith, and these are done individually or collectively. And then it must have scripture. Religions keep records of their founders, their teachings, their history, their worship and events and things that occurred in their, not lifetime, but in their times of experience in the past. And last but not least, it ought to have a feature of geography. Most religions have certain countries where they begin and they flourish and where they exercise their influence. And certainly this is true even today. And not every religion has each one of these features, but you'll find most of these features in all of them. So this is a painting with a broad brush, the features that organized religions will tend to have. Now, I want to start with primitive religions because this, even though it's not organized, they don't fit into any of the patterns of major organized world religions. But their ideas and, and, and the way we see it practiced by many in the ancient world and even in today's society is still present in a different but disorganized way. I mean, it's not organized at all, not incorporated uh, as any particular organization, uh, but they're being practiced in tribal and, and smaller circles. Now, some of the features of, of primitive religion uh, are the following. First of all, there is a strong belief in magic. 
What is magic? It's the power of apparently influencing the course of events by using mysterious or supernatural forces. Not at all attributed to God, but it's, it's focused on a spirit or powers, you know, juju, voodoo, all that. Hallelujah. Uh, there's no particular belief in an individual specific God or gods, but this is practiced or manifest in various forms, and I'm going to list about four of them to you. And the one, the first is animism. And uh, you can look these up for yourself on, on Google and do a history search on all these subjects. And uh, many of these, in fact, have uh, different definitions for in, in different realms, whether it's uh, a psychology or uh, even uh, you know, philosophy, theology, and so on. So I'm looking at the, 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 the theological angle more than anything else, okay? Animism is one of these. It's, it's objects that are inhabited by spirits. They believe that a certain object has a spirit inside of it. And many times even they attribute a soul to inanimate objects and natural phenomena. Animism. And then there's dynamism, a, a philosophy that explains something in terms of great energy or force. And uh, you have these examples of like sacred burial grounds, sacred hunting grounds, uh, particularly in, in North American Native Indians. Uh, but it's also in Africa. And I want to give you an example of that. You know, there's, there, there's a belief in, in this, that, and I'm telling you a lot of it is, of course, demonic forces. This is a great book by Brother Sam Latta. He uh, spent many years, and in fact, 46 years, he was married, and um, let's see, he spent 19 years as a missionary to Africa. And during that time, he uh, built 13 churches, not just in Liberia, but also in Zimbabwe. He knew the culture very well, very, very well, I promise you. And in his book, Sweet Liberia Sweet, by Brother Sam Lott, a fantastic book, and you can't get it. I got the only copy, and you can't have this because it's, it's, it's dedicated to me. Got his signature on it. I traveled with him in Eastern Europe for a month. He, we preached together. I translated for him. And then he put this book out. He passed away just this last year. And uh, he was a funny man, a great experiences. And I wish you could have. I, believe it or not, though, I've, I've sent off to one of the brothers in Georgia, uh, Brother Steve Waldron, who was actually a convert of Brother Lattice. And uh, he's a book man, and I'm, I'm trying to find out if we can get some more of these books. I think a lot of our folks would enjoy it. In fact, I'm trying to get some for my kids. So in chapter 18, page 93 of his book, there's this example I want to read to you about uh, this dynamism, this believing in this, in this power, great energy or force. Um, and in Africa, in many areas, they do. Now, you're talking about Liberia in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and uh, most of the work was inside the jungles and, and uh, deep in, in uh, the bush. Um, and the government always required our missionaries to maintain schools and to teach the children. And uh, we had many, many, many people, in fact, that helped out in that and did other missionary work. In fact, uh, as I read in the book here, Sister Valda Russell and uh, Sister Ina Hilton from Jamaica were there running the schools and taking care of the mission compound. Uh, at uh, Bomi Hill UPC Mission in, 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 in Monrovia, the capital. 
And then there was also Sister Elsie London, a Fasama mission. That's where Brother Sister Ladder went. And they had to fly. In fact, it was an hour away flying distance. The roads were horrible. Only way you can get there is flying. And he had a small Piper Club airplane and uh, crammed everything they could in there and go back and forth. And the stories you have in here is just absolutely incredible. But lots of ladies, uh, Sister Elsie Lund, for one, and uh, Sister Gruz, and, and, and many, I don't want to list all of them, but many great uh, single ladies went to Africa, cut the path, and established churches and missions. And hundreds and thousands of people were saved and came to the Lord. So it says this, nothing can hurt the God people. December, it says, is a dry time in Liberia. It never rains. The harmatons from the Sahara makes for poor visibility. It's that dust and humidity and storms that come up. But the church at Fasama has had revival. The chief's eldest son, Yapalo, and his wife, Kubach, have both received the Holy Ghost. Chief Widor, Yapalo's father, was furious. His three younger sons were already in the church. That didn't seem to matter. But you see, his elder son was to take his place. And he could not bear it. He poisoned Apollo, and we nearly lost him. But God healed him and raised him up. And Apollo and his wife were sent to Bomi Hill Mission to protect him from the chief. The people in Fasama on the mission were under the threat of the vengeance of the chief and Devil Bush Society. The chief had made his threat, quote, the mission people are going to see something, unquote. Since the chief had failed in his attempt to kill his son, he was going to use Heart Society to wreak havoc on the mission. The Heart Society is close to the Devil Bush Society. The Heart Society removes the hearts from its victims. The Devil Bush Society usually uses different medicines. Poisons are a favorite. They also play the lightning medicine. That's my focus, the power, lightning medicine where they can cause lightning to strike any person on which they focus attention. Now picture this also. Here's the mission compound in one area here with a short runway, and they call it the One Check Charlie, whatever. You only get one chance to get in it. If you miss it, you run into 79,000 volts of high wire going through there. Amen. But it, it's a mission right here with a small runway. And then there's a river on the compound. Another side of the river, there's... The, uh, the, the encampment of the, the, the tribal uh, village. So you get the picture here. Very close. It's really an eye shot of one another. But a little river and some jungle separating the two compounds. Since Apollo, the chief, excuse me, Apollo, the, the chief's son, and his wife are safely in Bomi Hill, the chief began working all kinds of medicines against the mission. And to think he was the one that begged the mission to come there to his village. He just couldn't bear to lose his eldest son to the mission. Not only was Apollo set in line to inherit the father's position, he also would inherit his harem of 17 wives. Well, oppression attacked the mission. Our people began to lock their doors. The people were living in fear. It was on a Monday morning when the drums began to rattle in the village. They continued all day. They throbbed through the night and all the day the next day for 72 hours. Their reverberating sounds continued to annoy everyone on the mission. Our, our librarians knew they were playing a medicine, the native Liberian church people. At noon on a Thursday, 
an awful-looking cloud came over the mountain. It was very black and had a green and yellow cast to it, a constant booming and crashing of thunder. It was a fearful thing. It was a deafening noise. The atmosphere was charged with terror and confusion. Confusion. Remember, it was dry time. It doesn't rain in December. Sister Gruz, that's Pauline Gruz, was standing on the back porch of her mission house. She was discharging jobs to the mission boys when without any warning, a ball of lightning struck her square in the face. Went to the ground through her body, tearing her side and her feet. She fell to the floor. Her spirit left her body. She could see her body lying there on the floor. The mission boys, the school boys, began in panic to cry and pray. She continued to ascend, and she told me that she had never heard such, such beautiful music. It was like the most awesome choirs she could have ever imagined hearing. But just as quickly, the Lord spoke to her ascending spirit and told her, your work is not finished. You must go back. She did not want to return, but she did. But she was a long time healing, but her work continued there on the mission field until she retired. Truly a wonderful woman of the Lord. When she recovered, the people in the village backed away from their mission in fear. They concluded by saying, quote, we have worked every medicine against the mission, but nothing can hurt the God people. Oh, glory. Aren't you glad you know God? Oh, you know the God that is over every spirit. Praise God. Even the devil's a subject to him. Amen. So dynamism, again, a philosophy that explains something in terms of great energy and great force. And this was an example of them doing just that. Folks are believing that, that they could direct it and they can get in contact with, them, with it. Amen. Then there's this uh, fetishism. It's a third manifestation of primitive religion. It's the worship of an inanimate object for its supposed magical powers because it's considered to be inhabited by a spirit. Like a samurai sword. Now, you know, when you hear, hear the word fetish, there's also a clinical psych, psychological term that really is associated with sexual deviancy. And uh, these sexual things, that, that, that they have these, these things for certain items. But in, in the, the religious segment, in the theological, philosophical area, it refers to uh, their affinity to these things because it's considered to be inhabited by spirit. You know, the, the samurai sword, I think Brother Chuck would know about this. He spent four years in Japan. Uh, th th there's a very strong, uh, a strong sense of this fetishism, certain things. Uh, and the, the samurai swords, you know, the, the samurais used to believe that their sword was really the extension of their soul. Literally believed that their soul was, was going inside that sword. And that sword and them are one. And uh, so, the fact, they used to have this expression where it said, you could feel the bushido. The bushido is that code of service, that honor and dedication to their trade and to their discipline. And it, it's, they considered their sword to be, to be inhabited by a spirit that was forged in water and fire as they made that sword with special care and really with a ritual. And uh, those things uh, have an incredible amount of, uh, of value in the eyes, even still in Asia, and particularly 
in Japan with respect to the samurai sword. Then there's this other aspect of, of primitive religion, and that is totem, uh, totemism, like a totem pole, totemism. It's a system of belief in which humans are said to have kinship or a mystical relationship with a spirit being, such as an animal or even a plant. And the entity or totem is thought to interact with a giving kin group or an individual and to serve as their emblem or symbol. And this is practiced, of course, by our Native American Indians uh, right here in North America. It's, it's a medium where really it's a form of ancestor worship or connection to uh, your, your ancestors, totemism. And again, these are not organized religions. You can see it. they're here and there in tribes and, and limited circles and areas, but they're there, okay? And they're not really predominant throughout the world. They have never organized. They're, they're, they don't have an evangelistic program. They're not out trying to recruit people to do that. It's just their familial or tribal uh, orientation and their history, and uh, they continue with that to this day. And these kinds of primitive, uh, primitive religions, um, you see, have kept very few records. You, you can't find a written records about them, at least not from them themselves. They had very little organized theological thought, if any, and they're mostly focused on nature and man's relationship with the environment. Now, we can trace primitive religions way back. Uh, it's not a, a relatively modern phenomenon. In fact, it goes way back as early as 4,000 B.C. in early tribal groups, 4,000 years before Christ. Here we are, 2022. That's about 6,000, a little about 6,000 years ago. The Egyptians also had this nature and mystery cults about 3,200 B.C., 3,200 B.C. The Babylonians introduced magic and astrology. That's one of your answers. Astrology to the mix. And then the Greeks come along, and uh, they had a primitive nature religion to begin with that just evolved through uh, mythological, uh, mythological stage and into a philosophical stage and then ended up with a mix of Roman-style mythology, and the Romans took all the Greek gods and gave them Roman names, like Zeus became Jupiter and foretold all the Romans. And the Romans mixed Greek mythology with their own primitive nature religion. And eventually, the Roman religion, the paganism, was eclipsed by Christianity. And we can still see traces of ancient Roman primitive religion in the Catholic form of Christianity. And I'm not throwing stones. It's just the way it is. There's a reason why they call that church Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church. And you can still see it in... They're having statues of saints, relics, images, candles. They have other mystical practices. And we can also see some primitive religions practiced in Africa. As I mentioned here, I gave you an example of it. Haiti, you have voodoo, and in the Caribbean islands, and among many other Native American people, both in North and South America, for that matter. But primitive religions are not part of the group of the major world religions uh, that are practiced by the majority of the population of the world, so at least not in the last 2,000 years, that's for sure. 
So we're going to take a look now at the 11 major organized religions in the world. We're going to look at Taoism first. Mostly in China, founded by Lao Tse, who lived from 604 to 517 B.C., before Christ was born. Their teaching, his teaching, was that man is the highest level of existence. Man is. And Taoism holds that humans and animals should be living in balance with the Tao or the universe. Tao is the word for the universe. It's everything in it and everything around them. And Taoists also believe in spiritual immortality, where the spirit of the body joins the universe after death. And when I mean universe, I'm not talking about just the stars. It's this, the spiritual context of, 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 of everything around us, the whole world as far as it goes, that it's one big entity, and we're just a speck in it. And when we die, we just kind of join uh, these, this inanimate world, maybe with spirit, and we just... Just blend in. And so his idea was that if there's a God, to experience God, that one has to look within man and nature and find this balance in life. And this is where, you know, the yin-yang comes in there. You'll see this all over Asia, uh, and, it's, and sometimes you see it here. But Kayla, if you could show that graphic, if you would. There it is. See it? I'm sure you've seen it before. That is a Taoist symbol from the Orient, from the East. The yin-yang, is, it's an ancient Chinese philosophy um, where you see that dark and light. It, it is a negative, positive component in the universe. It's a Chinese philosophical concept. I'm reading directly from the quote that I have, I have, I have uh, uh, copied. It says it's a, it's a Chinese philosophical concept that describes how obviously opposite or contrary forces may actually be complementary, interconnected, and yet interdependent in the natural world, and how they may give rise to each other as they interrelate to one another. In Chinese cosmology, the universe creates itself out of a primary chaos of material energy, organized into the cycles of yin and yang, formed into objects and lives. Yin is the receptive part of, of this process, and yang is the active principle. And you see it in all forms of change and difference, such as the annual cycles, winter and summer and the seasons, and then the landscape, the north-facing shade and the south-facing brightness, sexual coupling female and male, the formation of both men and women and as characters and sociopolitical history says disorder and order. That's what it symbolizes. It's, this, it's these two different poles that are, are opposite and yet complementary. They complement each other. And like male and female is one of the things. So that is their mindset. And, and it's important for us to, 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 to at least understand where they're coming from. Because this is what Christian missionaries have to penetrate a great deal, even under communism. Believe it or not, communism was not able to wipe out some of this stuff. It's very much felt and believed and lived by in the Asian regions. Um, so 
that's, that's the, uh, uh, the yin yang. And now, look at the flag of South Korea. I don't know if you noticed that. Have you seen it before? There it is. How about that? There's a special name for it. In fact, if you got a chance, Google it, look up the flag of South Korea, and see what they call it, and see what it symbolizes, why they have that yin-yang in the center. It's quite fascinating. But again, it comes back down to uh, Taoism and the principles that is laid down by him. Taoists, see, see, they reject all human institutions, and, and they believe that all human institutions are counterproductive to finding this balance in life. That, that man-made institutions really inhibit achieving balance in individual lives. Amen. Hallelujah. So that's Taoism. And next we'll look at Confucianism. Confucius, founded by King Fu Tse. And I'm not a Chinese expert, and I don't know if I'm even saying it right. But I'm phonetically expressing it as I know best in Hungarian. King Fu Tse lived from 551 to 478 B.C. And uh, uh, he lived about 70-some years, amen. But he taught that there was no heaven and there's no hell for people. And the focus is on the proper relationship between people in a society by cultivating personal virtues, personal basic virtues. Cultivating, that's one of your answers, I believe. Cultivating basic personal virtues. And so the practice of religion of this particular Confucianism was the cultivation of these virtues. What are these virtues? Well, wisdom, good morals, as based on his teachings. Wisdom and knowledge. Now you see Confucianism in China. That's a powerful force. Now, do you understand why... Uh, a lot of Asian children, when they come here or anywhere in the world, why they are, they are motivated, why they study hard, why they get good grades, and why they want to excel in everything they do. Because it is a cultivation of the personal virtues of discipline and skill and, and the virtue of wisdom and knowledge and good morals, keeping yourself clean. Amen. So, it, it, so it's not just the fact that, oh, they're just from China. They're from No, no, no. It's, it has to do with the religion. Their education partly is their religion. And they practice it religiously, pardon the pun. Hallelujah. So why, so do you understand just from a superficial way we can understand the people from that culture better? And how do we, you know, how, do we, how can we harness that at the same time, preach Christ to them? When all their life they have been taught this. The only thing that they penetrate that is the Holy Ghost and fire. And a supernatural intervention of God Almighty. Praise God. Hallelujah. So the practice of their religion is based is the cultivation of their virtues. So it's a, a wisdom and good morals and, and based on this teaching. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, then we're going to look at Shintoism, Shinto, Japan. Doesn't have a founder, but evolved from basic nature religion and uh, added concepts from Taoism and Confucianism from China and Buddhism, Shinto of Japan. This is a mystic nature religion. 
that evolved into a veneration of the island of Japan itself, attributed sacredness to the land of that, that island. And they considered to, that Japan was the, the center of creation. And its leaders were the descendants of the gods. And for a while, this religion, believe it or not, was used to promote Japanese supremacy until after World War II, it was stopped. It was one of the things that they used to go out and conquer. Okay, we're supreme. We're better than everybody else. We are the center of creation. We're the center of the world. And of course, our leader, the emperor, he's divine. He came from God. And they were venerated, worshipped. And if you read some about some of the stories of World War II, or how uh, this influenced uh, uh, the war effort, and what we did to counter that is very, very interesting. But nevertheless, it gives us a, a better insight into their mindset even to this day. I mentioned to you when I went to Japan about four or five years ago, there's this 200-foot statue, at least, of Buddha. And so, so there's this Shintoism is very much alive, and it's coupled with this Buddhism and Confucianism and Taoism. Uh, and so uh, they, they believe in what's a word called kami, K-A-M-I, kami. It's a divine power that can be found in all things. And you know, let me tell you, as I was studying these things, there is a speck of truth in many of these. There really is. Because the truth is, everything is held together by the Spirit of God. And I had a vision one time too. I saw the Spirit of God, the thing that's in everything. All of us, trees, bricks, walls, cars, everything. Paul said in him we live and move and have our being. In him. We're in him. But they just don't have the, the grasp of it. They don't have the understanding. They don't have the revelation of that one personal God, the deity that you and I have. They're just kind of groping in the dark, trying to, to find something, and something that makes sense in their lives. And so uh, this, 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 this kami, a divine power that can be found in all things, I can sympathize with that. But they don't know what that is. And they can form into whatever kind of a, you know, imagination they want to. And that's the problem. There's no scripture. There's no truth whereby they can gauge their own philosophy and ideas. And so when we look at uh, the Shintoism, it's, it's a polytheistic, multi-God in a sense that it's not the multiplicity of, of beings or, or, or people. But they see that this, this power is in everything, and it's in people, and it's, it's, it's in animals. And so they, there's an a animistic uh, element of, uh, of, Shin, of uh, Shintoism. And uh, since it sees all things like animals and other natural objects as deities, it's, it's a form of polytheism, more than one God. Shintoism. Then we're going to look at Buddhism, mainly in India, China, and really the world at large. There's other places, but it's particularly predominant in India and China. The founder was Siddhartha Gautama, and he, this got four different variations of the spelling of his name that I found in researching. Siddhartha Gautama. He lived from 563 B.C. to 480 B.C. It's called the Enlightened One, the Enlightened One, or Buddha, Enlightened One. He taught that there's no one 
any one personal supreme being. It's a life, it's just a mixture of spirits, gods, and beings that are all in a continuous process of become part of the big whole. <laughs> not not H-O-L-E, it's W-H-O-L-E. It's the whole enchilada, you know what I mean? It's the whole shebang. It's the whole universe and everything in it, spiritual, physical, and every dimension you can imagine. So uh, we're all in a process of moving and, and, and coming to be a part of the whole. And in essence, when, as we live our life and we die, we just blend in. We just go into the part of the whole. Okay? And uh, they, 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 they claim this state of nirvana, a nirvana, which is reached when a person ceases a, to desire a conscious, independent life and is fully absorbed into the whole. So their whole life is taken up with uh, focusing and self-discipline and getting to the place where they deny themselves to the point that they lose their identity, they lose their value, they lose their purpose, they lose everything about themselves, just an attempt to blend in with that unknown whole. That's, that's what it's all about. And they, they liken it this way. It's like a drop of water, and that's in your notes. Like a drop of water is absorbed into the ocean. It ceases to be itself and becomes part of the ocean, the whole. And that's what you and I are. We just drops of water in the world, and we're just going to be, you know, die, and we just get absorbed into this whole, just like water does into the ocean. And the way to get to this nirvana, this state, of, uh, of losing yourself in the whole. And the way to, 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 to counter your desires and, and your consciousness about yourself and your awareness and your independence is by meditation, yoga, self-denial, and study. And that leads to nirvana. Nirvana defined, I looked at the classical definition, it says it's a transcendental state in which there is neither suffering or desire nor any sense of self and the person is released from the effects of karma and the cycle of death and rebirth. Now, when you look at the, see this is the, the goal of Buddhism, but we look at karma, there's another foreign word that, you know, we we hear sometimes that we don't know the full meaning of, but the karma is the total sum of a person's actions in this, in this life and in the previous states of life because they believe in reincarnation. So your karma is your, the total sum of all your actions. Maybe you've, you've lived four or five times before, and, and maybe it wasn't all the time as a human being. Maybe you lived as an animal, and you reincarnated. You're incarnated because, you know, you've done very good before and now you have, you know, the privilege of, of being a human being on a higher level, a higher plane. And, uh, you know, you can you perhaps reach nirvana because you are now on a higher plane, on a higher level. But uh, anyway, karma, karma, hallelujah. The sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence viewed as the deciding, as deciding their fate and the future experiences. You know, this is the, this is the crazy thing about, about now think, you know, A.W. Tozer said it right. He said, 
No nation rises higher than that of its religion. And no religion is any greater than its revelation of God. And the revelation of God determines three things. It determines the value of an individual. It determines uh, the value of an individual person. Did I say that? Value of an individual, then the ethical and, 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 and moral values. And last but not least, to a great degree, it determines the economic standard of living of a nation. So what a people believe has important ramifications and how much value you put on an individual and how you see the world. And it, 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 it has everything to do with your value system. Now, if you have somebody that believes in karma and reincarnation or multiple lives, you know, he, he's the kind of person that, that would not have any problems taking a knife and slitting your throat because, you know what, all right, I'll die in this life, but I'll come back in another form and I'll, eventually I'll get better. So what? I go to war, I die, I die, whatever, I'll leave my family, that's okay, I'll come back again as another form, another person. And through this whole process, what do I know? What do I care? I just, as long as I just keep getting better and better. You see how it affects your, your philosophy and your mindset and your outlook on life? And your morality and your value of human life, for example? Not to mention your own? So, uh, hallelujah, karma. All right, let's look at Hinduism, mainly in India. It's the oldest organized religion and still practiced today. It began about 2,000 years before Christ, 2,000 B.C. It was around. Yeah, it's around about the time of the calling of Abraham. But even with Abraham, Judaism wasn't organized yet, but it began to be here for Hinduism. It's still practiced. No founder. It's evolved from nature religion to the social, social system that produced four levels or strata or castes, as the Indians would say it, four different levels in Indian society with the priestly or the religious leaders being right at the top. But the terrible thing was that whatever caste or level you were born into, you could not get out of it. And that was one of the greatest tragedies in Indian life, as you call it, particularly in the last century and before in 1800s. It caused a lot of misery. People were not allowed to, to, uh, to ascend higher and get better, get better education, get better housing, get, get more wealth and go, get land. Well, no, you were born a cash. You have to stay in that level. I was born in a priestly uh, strata or level or caste, and so I'm, that's what I'm going to be, and my kids and everybody else, and nobody else can come up to where I am. And this is still a major religion in India. Now, I understand they, they tried to mitigate or somehow moderate this, this whole uh, subject of the caste system, but in many ways it's still there. In many ways still there. And uh, it's another thing that missionaries there have to fight against. Do you see how important mindsets are? No wonder Paul said, you know, be not conformed to this word, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. What you were taught and what you believe matters. Similar to Buddhism, we're talking about Hinduism, uh, Hinduism is similar to Buddhism in that it, the goal of life is complete oblivion. It's just, you, you just uh, 
cease to exist and just blend in with the universe. They call it moksha. And emerging with Brahma, that's the ultimate power. You ever heard of a Brahma bull? A Brahma, it's, it's power. Ultimate power. And the way to get there is good deeds, self-denial, yoga, and avoiding bad karma. <laughs> it helps the soul to reach moksha. And we already talked about karma, what that is. It may take several lifetimes in several forms, according to them. It could be in animals and humans before your soul reaches that state that you need to be in. And, of course, that's why reincarnation is part of their tenets. Then there is uh, Jainism, as we would say in India. Jain. Jain. Jainism. The founder was uh, Nataputta Vardhamana. I'm saying it in Hungarian again. You know? The consonants are hard and the vowels are short. Nataputta Vardhamana. Sounds good. 599 to 527 after Christ he lived. 599 to 527. Uh, lived what? About 72 years? Similar to Buddhism and Hinduism in that the goal is moksha, nirvana. It's oblivion. But the difference is really manifest in two ways. The only way to reach it, to reach moksha, nirvana, was through self-discipline and self-denial, not knowledge. Knowledge was not part of their equation as far as getting yourself to the place where you need to be. You don't need to study. You don't need to know anything. Just pray and uh, self-discipline. Just deny yourself. And yain, uh, by the way, I've written that, means to conquer. It means uh, implication is that you conquer yourself. Conquer self, your desires, your thoughts, your, your, your being, your needs. And once a person reaches moksha, this nirvana state, this ultimate power, the individual becomes a part of the whole, there we go again, but does not become oblivious. He still said that, that when you die, you will have a consciousness. You'll have an awareness. Your spirit will. It's interesting to note that this founder of Jainism in India starved himself to death after claiming that he had reached moksha in his lifetime. Hallelujah. Well, he never came back to talk about it like Jesus did. Then we come to Sikhism, mainly in Pakistan. That's where it was founded by a man by the name of Nanak. Look him up. A very interesting fellow. He lived in 1469 to 1558 AD. Nanak lived in an area bordering Hindus and Muslims. Therefore, Sikhism is a combination of both Hindu and Muslim ideas. There's moksha and the idea of reincarnation from Hinduism and they borrow monotheism from, from, from Islam. As in believe in one God, Allah. And believe it or not, it's the fifth largest organized religion in the world. They have anywhere from 28 to 30 million uh, people in India alone. And uh, they only have 10 gurus in their lineage from the time of its inception. And they're, they're, they're directed by these chief you know, uh, religiously as gurus, as they call them. And uh, one person, uh, they teach, reaches moksha through the love of God and doing good. And moksha is to them a conscious experience. You don't lose your identity in the whole, in the ultimate power that you're blending yourself in with. And interestingly, 
It rejects the Hindu caste system and believes in everybody having equality in society. In fact, they believe in the brotherhood of all men. Now, you, 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 when I say Sikh, do you know who I'm talking about? It's these guys that have that band of that turban on their head. They have long hair. Okay, and, and there's a reason for that. Let's look at the next. Uh, the, the religious system is ruled by a succession of gurus, the last of which, whose name was Govind Singh, required all devotees to add Singh, which means lion, to their names, and they have to carry the five Ks. Five K, no, not 5,000 uh, uh, meters or five kilometers. It's carrying the Kesh, which means long hair. Then you carry the Kanga, which is a comb. And you carry a kash, which is shorts underneath your clothing. And kara, which is a steel bracelet. And a kurpan, which is a sword, which is really a small little dagger more than anything. Amen. Those are the Sikhs. I've seen, I used to, in London, I've seen very few of them in America. But big cities, they're there. And uh, there were terrific fighters in the, uh, in the British Army in the colonial days in India and other places. Hallelujah. One-godders. They believe in one God. Hallelujah. All right. Besides Sikhism, there's Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism, particularly in Iran. That's where it began. Under the name of Zoroaster. That was the founder. It lived in 650 to 583 B.C. Now, this is right about the time that Israel was in captivity in Babylonia at that time. I'll get to that in a minute. Now, based on the visions of Zoroaster, um, they believed in one God. It was a monotheistic religion. They called him Ahura Mazda, which means Lord Wisdom. And uh, they believed in, in, in truth, and they believed that there's only two things. There's truth and a lie. You have to believe the truth in order to be saved and go to heaven. And uh, they believed that doing good and avoiding evil brought one to heaven. So it was the monotheist who taught that doing good and avoiding evil brought one to heaven. And one of the oldest continuously practiced organized religions in the world. And believe it or not, there's about 100 to 200,000 of them in, uh, in Iran and in India. In fact, I read uh, just the other day there's about 50,000 of them in the United Arab Emirates right on the Persian Gulf. Amen. They used fire in their worship system. They also believed in a concept of good and evil, and that the world, uh, in the world, and they predicted the ultimate conquest of evil by good. They believed that. And they believed that God sent a special envoy every 1,000 years called a Satshiyant, an envoy. That's one of your answers. Believe that God sent a special envoy every 1,000 years called a Satshayant. Something the, that the wise men that came to see Jesus in Bethlehem were these Zoroastrians. Islam, we're just going to hit Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. We're coming towards the end. Hallelujah. Islam began in Saudi Arabia. It's a worldwide religion, as you know. Founder was Muhammad. Who lived from 570 to 632 A.D. 
And Islam is based on the vision of Muhammad and the writing of these visions in the Quran, their holy book. He taught that man goes to paradise by complete submission to Islam, complete submission to Allah. And by the way, Islam means submission. The Muslim or Muslim, either one, is the person that practices Islam. Okay? So there's a difference between the two. A Muslim or a Muslim is one who practices Islam. Islam is subjection or submission. One and the same. You got to be submitted to Allah. And submission is exercised through the practice of the five pillars. Five pillars. Five things you got to do. Number one, you have to practice confession. Confession. And a confession, whenever you pray, is repeating the phrase, quote, there's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's the number one prayer. That's a, competitive, com, uh, uh, a continuous, repetitive phrase. There's no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. There's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. They are required uh, in the five pillars to almsgiving. 2% of total income goes to alms. And it's alms meaning giving away uh, to the needy. It's charity. Prayer is also required. We're going to the five pillars, and you're supposed to pray five times a day. And five times in Muslim countries, the call to prayer goes out with loudspeakers, as in Dearborn, Michigan. Early in the morning, from 5 a.m. all the way till at night, five times. Amen. You thought bells were bad. And then there's fasting. It's one of the five pillars, during, especially during the holy month of Ramadan. It's 40 days of fasting. And that means fasting all day long, not eating anything, but at night you can eat as much as you want. And that's the way it is. In fact, I watched this. We were there in London, and uh, there's a huge mosque down in the central part of London, and, and the queen even had visited that place before. A very nice place. I went in it. I went inside. looked at it. During Ramadan, we were there. And people would come, and they would bring food to that mosque on the out, the downstairs and also, you know, I mean, the basement area, the fellowship hall, you would call it, or even outdoors. The people, would, Muslims, would bring their food, multitudes of it, trays of it. So when the sun goes down, everybody would have a feast, and everybody would eat as much as they want every day. So for 40 days, hallelujah. And then, of course, the fifth pillar of Islam or submission is a pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And really it's something that is advocated for once a year, but most cannot do it, cannot afford it. But who can travel every year to go to Mecca, Saudi Arabia, a, a whole vast expanse of, of, uh, of the Islamic community throughout the Middle East, many of them poor people. And so they're, they're encouraged to do it at least once a lifetime. It's called the Hajj, the H-A-J-J, Hajj. And so originally, this was spread by military campaigns. Uh, and uh, today, there are many different groups within Islam itself. And often, these are in conflict with each other, such as the Sunnis and the Shiites. They're the two largest of the groups. And uh, as you know, in the country of Iran and Persia, the majority of the people there are Shiites, as about 
40 to 45% of the Iraqi people, and the other half are Sunni. And uh, there's a, that's, that, folks, that's one of the biggest problems in the Middle East is this, it's not just the, the Muslims against the Jews, it is, it is the Shia against the Sunni. Big problem. And so Sunnis and Shiites, the Sufis, the Baha'i, and then even the black Muslims and the Nation of Islam are groups that are within the umbrella covering of Islam as a religion. Then Judaism. Now, Judaism, as you know, it mainly focused on Israel, but throughout the world. I mean, when uh, God uh, brought forth the diaspora, the, 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 the spreading them throughout the world, uh, we know that it was not established by any man, but it was established by God, beginning with the calling of Abraham about 2000 B.C. And one of the earliest truly monotheistic religions, one God. In fact, that was the whole premise that Judaism is built upon. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. And it began with Abraham. And God has chosen the descendants of Abraham to be his special representatives on earth and to bless the world through them. Why? Because, as you remember, at the Tower of Babel, they turned against God, not just in the Garden of Eden. Under Nimrod, they rebelled against God, got confused the languages. Nimrod introduced idolatry and institutionalized it. And when God confounded the languages, all the people went to everywhere in the world, and he took their idols and false gods with them. And God looked down upon earth in that idolatrous mess, and he called a man by the name of Abraham and said, hey, Abraham, come on out. I'm going to call you, I'm going to send you to Canaan, and I'm going to put my truths inside of you, and you're going to teach your kids and your family and, and your, all your, your descendants after them. They're going to continue this work because I know that you're going to be diligent, you're going to be strict, you're going to teach them what I want them to know, and you're going to teach them that there's only one God, and you're going to teach them what his name is. And this book is a result of that calling. And their re records of it, phenomenal. More records than any other religion in the world. Oh, hallelujah. So God chose Abraham and his descendants to be special representatives on the earth. Not just the church, and believe it or not, God wanted to use Israel to shine his light to the rest of the world as well. Look at uh, uh, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord has said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto the land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And watch this. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Notice God's perspective. All people in the world are from the same family. We're all part of a family. For all the different family groups will be blessed. Isaiah 49, 6. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. God wanted Israel, and through their laws, through their life, through their behavior, through their worship system, and their confession of one God, to be a light to a paganistic, 
animistic, primitive, religious, idolatrous world. The power of the calling of Abraham. Established a relationship with God based on several things. Obedient faith. It's the first. Abraham, the father of faith. Obedient faith, animal sacrifice, circumcision of all the males, and prayer, and building of altars. And much later, of course, the law of Moses, and uh, uh, including the Ten Commandments, and all the rites that were practiced by Abraham were incorporated into Judaism. They believed in the concept of an afterlife. They had public and congregational worship, and it first focused on the tabernacle of the wilderness, and then when they built the temple, it, it focused on, on the temple in Jerusalem. And after the destruction of the last temple in 70 AD, after Calvary, local congregational meetings take place even to this day in the home and in the synagogues where they conduct prayer, singing, readings from the Old Testament scriptures, prayer books, and rabbinical commentaries. And you'll see today the three main groups in Judaism. It's still there, both in Israel and throughout the world, even in Florida. Reform Judaism, that's the liberal branch. They promote the modern state of Israel. The other ones don't. The conservatives don't. They believe that, that man, even Jewish people, don't have the right to establish Israel. God has to do it. For many years, they wouldn't even allow their, their sons to, to be in the Israeli army and armed forces and defend the state. They said, no, it's God who's supposed to establish our state, not us. But this is reform, the liberal branch. They don't believe so strictly on the laws of Moses and kosher and so on. Conservative Judaism is the second group. They still hold to the concept of a Messiah or a personal Savior to come. Then, of course, the third group, Orthodox Judaism. They hold to the historical practice and beliefs of ancient Judaism, including the dietary laws, kosher laws, and dress codes, except for animal sacrifices and temple-oriented worship. Of course, because there's no priesthood, there's no temple, there's no sinners of refuge. They can't practice any, basically, of the laws of, of, uh, of, the, of, of the Old Testament, law of Moses, except the moral law. And we do that too. Hallelujah. Oh, somebody say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Christianity, we got there. Hallelujah. It began in Israel and spread throughout the world. Founder, Jesus Christ. Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus established his church. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the Jewish people and the entire world. John the Baptist said it. He confessed it in John 1.29 when he saw Jesus come by. He said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Not just Israel, the world. Jesus came to deal with the sin of mankind. Not just Israel. He is, Jesus, the embodiment of God in human form. And this, his, this, his teachings and, and his commands have, have divine authority because of who he was and is. He performed public miracles and finally he was executed by the Roman government. He died on the cross on the hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha or Calvary. He was then buried in, in a tomb and he rose from the dead three days later, appeared to his disciples for over 40 days and then appeared before a group of over 500 witnesses. And Paul records this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 8. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which have all, ye also have ye received and wherein ye stand, 
by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, meaning Peter, and then of the twelve, and, and, that, and after that he was seen above five hundred Brethren at once, above. That means more than 500 brethren, Christians at once, of whom the greater part remain or are still alive unto this present day and the time when he was writing this to the Corinthians. But some are fallen asleep. Some died. They're not here with us anymore. And after that, he was seen of James and then all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen also of me as of one born out of due time. Listen, he ascended to heaven, was witnessed by many witnesses there too. His apostles were there, angelic manifestation was there. It was not just one person. It was not just one man's idea. This was something that was not done in a corner or hidden. This was done out in the open through centuries long, one prophet after the other, totally cohesively and coordinatedly by the one spirit of Almighty God to show mankind that the scriptures are reliable, that there's only one God. And his name is Jesus. Can you say praise the Lord? Well, let's give him a round of applause real quick. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. And in short, Christianity believes that the death of Jesus Christ pays mankind's moral debt before God. Moral debt. And people are saved from judgment by faith in Jesus. Then obeying Acts 2.38 and finally walking in a life of holiness that pleases him. And we will live a conscious, eternal life with him. Aren't you glad about that? We're not going to cease to exist and go into oblivion. And, and, you know, there's nothing more to slide. Just do whatever you want to and die and that's over. No. No. We're worth more than that. We're a whole lot more than that. Praise God. And then with this Christianity, we, we end really the description of all the world's 11 religions. But I do want to make a, a few comments in closing, and that's regarding the supremacy of the Christian religion. And I don't mean that in, in a sense of, of a, 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 how shall I say, a, a patronistic, I'm, I'm not patronizing anybody, I'm not looking down on anybody, we're not doing that. But there is a supremacy, there is a primacy, there is a, an elevated form of this kind of worship above all else. And evidence is quite clear when you look at all the other religions in the world. And I'll, I'll make a case for it and say why. Christianity, for one, has a superior revelation of God. I made that mention of A.W. Tozer. We do have a supreme revelation of God. It's one thing to know who God, that there is a God. It's another thing to know who he is and what he's like. And Christianity affords that. Even Judaism didn't have that, really. It's under Jesus Christ that we begin to know him and see him more and how he related to his own creation that we know more about him than ever before. So we have a superior revelation of God. See, most other religions have a very limited view of God, if any. And they only see him as either an impersonal force of power or some kind of supernatural human being. We know who he is. We know what that power is. We don't have to be afraid of it. 
We know he loves us. He cares for us. He has compassion on us. And only Christianity reveals that God is pure spirit with consciousness and will. He's got power. He's got knowledge. He's got a moral force. And he has feelings of emotion and the power to communicate. None of these other features are other religions. I think, in fact, even in Islam, I, I've never read or heard of, of Allah communicating with anyone other than, other than Muhammad. None of these other religions have a, a God or a force that talks to them. Ours does. I'd rather have a God like that. Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm glad he can communicate. And Christianity explains what kind of being God is. Not just what he is or what he wants from us, but what he wants for us. So Christianity is a, super revel a superior revelation of God. And besides that, Christianity has a superior leader. Mm -hmm. Can I get an amen? amen? I'm not talking about me. Mm -hmm. Hallelujah. I'm talking about Jesus. All other religions have men or women as leaders and prophets and gurus and priests. But Christianity has God himself as the leader. What a big difference. He came in human form. It's only in Christianity. See, the leader is always alive and always present to direct and guide us and lead us and encourage us. His, his, his followers have him every generation to generation. Isn't that what uh, uh, Jesus said in John 16, 13? That when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. Guide you. We've got him present. God is guiding us. His spirit is leading and guiding us. Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they're the sons of God. We are to expect the spirit of God leading us. So not only does Christianity have a superior leader, Christianity offers a superior solution to the greatest need of mankind, that's sin. Other religions try to solve or offer you know, ideas to, to solve humanity's problems by and the only thing you can do is just offer religious rites and rules and other practices. And really there's nothing for the present life that's usually a solution after you die. You cease from pain, cease from existence, cease from your identity, cease from everything, all your troubles, and you blend in with the great whole, the great power of the universe. And so uh, Christianity is the only one that identifies this underlying problem causing human suffering. It's separation from God because of disobedience to God's laws. It's sin. That leads to guilt, to shame, to death, to condemnation and judgment. No other religion does that. And in Christianity, God does for humans what they cannot do for themselves. Oh, hallelujah. He eliminates guilt by eliminating the moral debt caused by sin. So what does he do? Hallelujah. God himself through Jesus Christ, he saves people who respond to his call by faith in Jesus, follow through with their faith in being born again of the water and the spirit. Hallelujah. He paid it all. You don't have to pay for it. The moral obligation is taken care of. Your moral debt, the debt that you and I couldn't pay. But the Christianity it is. 
Nobody else has that, that kind of release. No one else has that kind of comfort coming to the conscience and delivering them from sin and from, from shame and from guilt and from a guilty conscience. And finally, last but not least, Christianity offers a better hope. The best thing that Far Eastern religions, for example, can offer is that individuals would cease to exist at death or sooner. Islam offers a paradise that's much like life here on earth, only better, according to them. And in many ways, this is also what primitive religions offer, safety, safety here. If you do their magic, their juju, and you do what the, what the witch doctor says, and the ideal situation is after you die. Well, in one sense, it's true even for us. I mean, to be absent from a body is to be present with the Lord. That is true. So like I said, there's some elements in, in, the, in the primitive religions that, that ring hollow, but yet they, they ring some elements of truth. This is why we have to base our faith on Scripture. Jesus said, he that believeth on me as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You better make sure your faith is in alignment with the Word of God, your own philosophy or some other man's philosophy that sounds right. Or not even juju, not even demonic powers because they show some kind of power. Not even angels. Paul said, if we or an angel preach unto you any of the gospel that we have delivered unto you, let him be accursed. We don't worship angels. We worship Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so Christianity offers his followers the hope that while they're alive here on earth, they can expect six things. And you have it in your notes. One is freedom from fear and guilt. Freedom from fear and guilt. Two, you can expect peace of mind. Three, you can expect a loving relationship with other believers. Four, you can expect greater insight into the mind of God. Oh, hallelujah. You can expect spiritual renewal. And six, you can really expect greater accomplishment of life. Because remember, the greater your awareness and knowledge of God, the greater that you can rise in many ways. Morally, economically, financially, same deal. Every which way. Your values are changed accordingly. So in addition to these above six things, Christians can look forward to an afterlife where they are, one, they're conscious spirits with a personal identity. Listen, we're not going to be disappearing into nothingness. We're not going to be blending into his spirit so far that we don't have any identity. The Bible says on the Mount of Transfiguration there, Jesus had that prayer meeting with his top three, Peter, James, and John. And who shows up but Elijah and Moses, and they recognized him. No loss of identity. In the book of Luke, when we see uh, the Lazarus and a rich man, Lazarus ends up in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man's down in hell looking up. Both of them retained their identity. And Abraham, in that sense, called Lazarus by name. Remember Lazarus, when he, et cetera, et cetera. We have a consciousness. We'll have a memory. We're not blending into a great big power of God. As great as he is, omnipotent, uh, omniscient, and, and, uh, and, and he's, he's, he, we're going to have our own identity, but blended with him for sure. Free from physical limits. 
including death and sin. So we'll not only be, be conscious spirits, but we'll be free from physical limits, including death and sin. We'll be joined to God in an intimate personal relationship for eternity. And here we come, finally, brethren. Last but not least, Christianity is superior because, one, it has the most historical written records. The Word of God. It has many eyewitnesses uh, and accounts of Jesus' life. And lastly, it has the most positive impact on the world. You talk about schools, soup kitchens, charitable works, lifting up people from poverty. Christianity does that. Not basically by giving money away. By teaching the truths of God's word that, first of all, elevate man's mindset and become more productive. They become more in harmony with him, and God blesses their work. The Bible says promotion cometh from the Lord. If you want to do anything great for God, make sure that you talk to him about it. Make sure you're in his will. Make sure that you know his word. Praise the name of the Lord. Make sure that you're doing what he wants you to do. I want him to bless me, don't you? Stand with me. Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being patient and bearing with me. I gave you a long handout, but man, we've been around the world. The next one won't be like this, I guarantee you. I knew this was going to be long, but I tell you, we laid a good foundation. Now, don't you just see now how much better we have it as Christians? How privileged we are in our, in, in, on our understanding of God and those poor people out there, their idea of God is so shallow. And yet they're so dedicated. They are. Many of them, they're doing the best they can. I've told you, I watched it in Vietnam. Early in the morning, they open the shops and, and they take cookies and, and food and, and they light a candle. And I saw this lady. I showed you, she, she bent down in, on the sidewalk. She didn't care if anybody saw her. She was right in front of the, the, the door and the entrance of the store shop and came away from the sidewalk. People were walking. She's right on the curb of the street. And she, she bows down and she goes like this. She, she takes that little dish, puts her little cookies and whatever offerings to her God, and she lit that candle and she comes forward and she says her prayer like this and she goes down to the ground in a public. I'm not mocking her. I'm saddened for her because they think that that's all God is. I happened to be in a Catholic church one night for midnight mass. My wife and I were there. It's Christmas time. And her nieces were there in the choir singing. At least one of them was. And you know, one of the saddest things I've witnessed, I haven't been to a Catholic church in ages. But I watched the people come through because the priest had them give them communion and gave them the wafer. And when they give them the wafer, they say, receive you the Holy Ghost. Their teaching is that you get the Holy Ghost when you eat that wafer. And I, I, I still remember that. I, I'm still broken over that. I, honestly, to think that you can reduce God to a wafer and that experience that he died to give us, what deprivation. What denial of the true living God. 
reduce them into food? And I think it's almost animism. See, there's something spiritual inside that wafer. It's not. It's dedicated to God. Yeah, I understand that. But it's not the Holy Ghost. That's not the Holy Ghost I receive. That's not the Holy Ghost you receive. All I'm saying is, there's so many people out there, different persuasions. We have something precious, something unique, something great. And especially in these last days, I want to do my level best to hold on to it. And not just to hold on to it, but to propagate it. Because Jesus called us to preach this gospel to the whole world. We can do it better if we're confident in what we believe and know that what we have is better than what anybody else has. I'm sorry. And I don't mean that again, looking down on anybody. It's just the way it is. We just lift your hands right now and ask God to help you and I to stand on the ground, to get more of Him, to know Him better and to walk in His Spirit and His power and His presence, Jesus. We thank you, we worship you, we praise you. We thank you, Lord God, for the greater revelation. We thank you for the greater experience that we have in you, O Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us enlightenment into how the world is and who you are. We can know how you think and what you want from us and what you're planning from us for us. Lord, you're so great. You're so wonderful. I am so glad I know you. I'm so glad, oh God, that I can communicate with you and you communicate with me as you do with all of us. Lord, there's no God but you. You are the only one and there's no Savior beside you. Jesus, I love you. Oh, Bless the name of the Lord.